Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's session. My name's Nicole Aberdee. I write about books for Good Weekend magazine and I interview writers at festivals like these. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation with much-loved writer Geraldine Brooks about her sixth novel, Horse, in which she explores the true story of one of America's greatest racehorses, Lexington, formerly known as Dali, while also interrogating the corrosive legacy of slavery and racism in America. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. Geraldine Brooks. Geraldine Brooks, AO, is the author of six novels, all of them deeply researched historical fiction and all international bestsellers. Her first novel was Year's Year of Wonders, a novel of the plague, which was a big hit a few years ago when COVID struck, as well as obviously when it was originally published in 2001. Her second, March, published in 2005, won the 2006 Pulitzer Prize. Her non-fiction includes Nine Parts of Desire, Foreign Correspondence, and a really beautiful book about Tim Winton in the Black Ink Writers on Writers series, which was published last year. Born and educated in Sydney, Geraldine began her career as a journalist, working for the Sydney Morning Herald, and then when she moved overseas, the Wall Street Journal, as a foreign correspondent covering crises in the Mideast, Africa, and the Balkans. In 2016, she was appointed officer in the Order of Australia for her services to literature. She currently divides her time between her homes in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts and Sydney. And finally, she's a Star Trek fan. Bet you didn't know that. (laughs) The Boston Globe said this about her, which I really loved. There's something boring on the supernatural about Geraldine Brooks. She seems to be able to time travel. Sometimes, reading her books, she draws you so thoroughly into another era that you swear she's actually lived in it. Geraldine, welcome. It's so good to be here. Now, I believe that we have the Nigerian secret police to thank for your segue from journalism to becoming a full-time writer. Why is that? We do have the Nigerian secret police to thank for it. Um, I was very much involved in my career as a correspondent. All I'd ever wanted to do in my life was be a newspaper reporter. And I had gone to Nigeria to investigate claims that Shell was in cahoots with the military dictatorship of Sunny Abacha and that they had massacred peaceful protesters uh, who, uh, who had had um, years and years of shell uh, degrading their land, and these are some of the poorest people on the planet. And, um, and I got there, and the story was even worse than what we'd been told. You know, people had been um, shot and macheted, and, uh, and these people, for 35 years, billions of dollars of oil wealth had been extracted from their lands, and there was not one school, not one clinic, barely a road and their wells were contaminated. So I had gone around collecting information about this, 
And then as you do as a reporter, I went to the Nigerian military to get their side of the story. And that didn't go over very well. <laughs> and they handed me over to the secret police and they threw me in the slammer. And I didn't know how long they were going to keep me. And I'm lying on the concrete floor the first night and thinking, gee, I'm 39 years old. If they keep me for very long, I'll be too old to get pregnant. <laughs> And that was the first time it had occurred to me that there was actually a clock on this situation. And so um, when they deported me just three days later, I was extremely relieved. And uh, I got off the plane and greeted my husband, Tony, with great enthusiasm. <laughs> and shortly after, you moved back to the States. And the next year, you gave birth to your first, of your two, or you gave birth to your first son. Uh, a year later, yes. <laughs> Let's talk now about this beautiful book, Horse. Where did you first hear the story of Lexington, one of the United States' greatest um, racehorses, and what was it about the story that really appealed to you? Well, if you're going to become horse crazy, I recommend doing it at the age of five or 15, not as I did at 50-something, um, but that's what happened. I'd never, never really had a riding lesson. Uh, and I was out at a conference for writers in Santa Fe, and it was on an old ranch with these beautiful Appaloosa and paint horses, and um, the wrangler saw me admiring them because I love animals, and uh, he said, you should come on a trail ride with us, and I said, I can't ride, and he said, you can, and I believed him, and we went on this trail ride, and it was an ecstatic experience, and I got home, and uh, a few days later, a young friend was visiting, and I told her how much I'd loved it. And she said, you know, you've got a couple of acres here. You could have a horse. In fact, I could give you my horse. <laughs> a free horse. <laughs> I, there were so many questions I should have asked. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. I said, of course, and uh, started looking into all kinds of things about horses, taking riding lessons, learning how you transport a horse, because this horse was not close by. This horse was in Mexico. <laughs> anyway, uh, what, what happened was the horse arrived uh, after incredible agony, but it didn't matter because I knew this horse was beautiful and I knew it because she was in a commercial uh, it, in Mexico. Oh. It, was, um, it was a commercial for a fast-acting cream to treat vaginal yeast infections. <laughs> The Palomino gallops across the Mexican Altiplano and the voiceover says, something should be fast. <laughs> anyway, I got the horse and then the horse was all I wanted to think about and I wasn't getting any work done. And my free horse was an incredibly expensive thing. <laughs> uh, and so there was a lot of money going out and not a lot coming in because suddenly I couldn't really get engaged with writing about Second Iron Age Israel, which is what I was supposed to be doing, because there were no horses in it. <laughs> and then I, I happened to be invited to a, um, a lunch at uh, Plymouth Patuxet Plantation, which is a great museum that's associated with the Smithsonian. And there was a gentleman from the Smithsonian in Washington at the lunch, and he was way down the table from me, but I became so fascinated when he started telling his lunch companions the story of how he had just delivered the skeleton of the greatest racehorse of the 19th century 
from um, a forgotten place in the attic of the Natural History Museum to centerpiece at the International Museum of the Horse in Kentucky because this horse was the reason that Kentucky became the center of thoroughbred breeding. And then when it got up to what happened to the horse during the Civil War, my salad was uneaten. <laughs> my lunch companions had not a scintilla of my attention, and I was just focused on this, and I knew that that was going to be my next book. And luckily, my publisher gave me an advance, and so I could afford the horse. <laughs> Geraldine, when you decided that this was a story that you wanted to tell, you said that it's a little bit like becoming infatuated because you think this one's going to be perfect. This one's going to be so easy about the story. It wasn't easy. Why not? What uh, were some of the paths that Lexington's story took you down? Yeah, so I think, oh, this is great. Story about a 19th century racehorse. And the first thing I learn as I start to research it is that the success of this horse and thoroughbred racing in the 19th century in general was built on the plundered labor and skills of enslaved black horsemen. And so then I realized that there's such an integral part of the story. And yet I'm very aware of the discourse about a white woman writing the story of black men. And so there was a lot of self-questioning around that. Uh, and also the story then went in so many different directions. So I knew that I wanted it to be a braided narrative with the 19th century story of the horse, but also the horse's skeleton at the Smithsonian, because I just get so fascinated with people who have really weird jobs, and being an osteopreparator uh, is a really weird job. And we're going to come back to that, because yes. the way you write about that is so fascinating. So I love getting up in people's business. It's the old newspaper reporter in me. So, so once I knew I was going to have a contemporary thread as well, I realised that I can't leave the story of race in the 19th century, as if it's something over and done with, that we don't need to bother our heads with anymore, because clearly this is not the case, and it is a throbbing boil in our societies that is still unlanced. And so I knew I would have to go there in the contemporary thread as well. And then I'm starting the research, and I go to the Smithsonian to research Osteo Prep and a curator from the American Art Museum says, you know, we have an oil painting of the horse. Would you like to see it? And I said, sure, it's not on display. It's in the study center. And so we go and ferret out this painting. And I say, did you get this when the skeleton was donated back in the 19th century? And, and she looked through her notes and said, no, no, much more contemporary. Really weird because it came in a bequest from Martha Jackson, who was a renowned modernist uh, feminist gallerist from the post-World War II art scene in New York. And she was one of the earliest proponents of abstract expressionism and op art and all the contemporary movements and every other painting that in the bequest was edgy contemporary art, except this one 19th century realistic portrait of Lexington. So why did Martha Jackson have that painting? Mm. So then I've got a whole <laughs> I, story of a horse that unexpectedly leads to the sports car that Jackson Pollock died in. 
And the, I mean, that is what's so amazing. It's the story of a horse. It's the picture of a horse on the front. The book's called Horse. But we find you writing about everyone from Jesse James to Jackson Pollock in New York in the 1950s, Cassius Clay, the famous um, abolitionist or emancipationist. Emancipationist. I didn't know the difference when I started to learn about him. Tell, please tell us because so I wasn't So abolitionists sure just believed that slavery should end by any means necessary including uh, violent and nonviolent means. Emancipationists believe that slavery should end, but it should be uh, achieved through changes in legislation. So as you've said, there are two main strands to your story. Both of them are connected to Lexington. We're going to talk about each in order. So as you say, the first one is the story of Lexington the racehorse and his trainer, Jarrett, who's a slave. It's set in the south of the United States in the 1850s, in Kentucky, in Mississippi. Uh, in Louisiana, just before the Civil War began. Then we've got the modern strand. We've got the story of Theo, who's an art historian doing a PhD, and Jess, who's an Australian woman working over there in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in 2019. They're the two main strands. There's a a third, smaller strand, which you've just referred to, that deals with the um, Martha Jackson and the avant-garde world of art in the 1950s. Let's start with the 1850s story and something that you've touched upon this issue of the use of slaves in the horse racing industry in the antebellum South. So you've said in the 1800s, horse racing was very, very popular. It was a national obsession. And there was a particular aspect you wanted to explore because it hadn't been written about much until recently. And it was what you've you've adverted to. The the history of the use of black enslaved men as trainers, grooms and jockeys. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how, how you discovered that fact? Well, it's, it's it, it, immediately you learn that Lexington was uh, initially trained by, a, a, even in his own time, um, remarkably well-known black trainer who had been enslaved but who had uh, been so successful as a horse trainer that he'd managed to buy his own freedom. Uh, and so Lexington's early success was due to this man. It then becomes possible that he even owned the horse, but a black man was not allowed to race a horse in his own name. So the official owner was a white doctor. And uh, it's a very murky thing, but I posit that this horse was essentially stolen from Harry Lewis. Um, and, And then, you know... Um, there's the groom Jarrett and I couldn't find out much about the actual Jarrett except the fact that he existed. And you and first got his name from a, a painting. painting. Yes. It's a, it's a missing painting actually yeah. and it's supposed to be the finest painting that the artist Thomas J. Scott ever produced and it's been described many times in the contemporary press as the best painting and how moving it is because it's of Lexington late in his life and he's with his, with Black Jarrett, his groom, and Jarrett turns up in the records of um, the farm where Lexington went for his stud career, which was illustrious. And he, there's also many references to the horse being moved from Louisiana to Mississippi and so forth in, in the care of the darkie who I assume was also Jarrett. So as somebody who now lives with horses every day, you know who the horse cares about the most, and it's not the owner. 
And it's not even the trainer and it's not the jockey. It's the person who's there in the morning with the, with the grain, the person who's um, grooming the horse, the person who's bathing um, the horse's legs when they're hot and sore. And it's that relationship with the groom. That's the footstep that the horse recognises when they walk into the barn. So I knew that that would be my central character. So you tell the story, if you like, you you convey the story of how these slaves were used by their white owners to train the horses, were given no credit, um, were not talked about. Um, you tell that through the story of Jarrett, who you've mentioned. When we first meet him, it's 1850. Jarrett is 13. He's living with his father, um, Dr Warfield's property. Dr Warfield's the owner of the horses. And um, in 1850, that's when Lexington, then known as Darley, is born. Jarrett is not a real person. I know you got his name from that painting. How did you put together the, the character of Jarrett? So I rested on the scholarship of black historians uh, who are now unearthing the stories of, of the black horsemen. Uh, so they've done some really significant work in the last uh, decade on this subject. And there are bits and pieces of different trainers and different... Um, different enslaved people who did come to notice because of their extreme expertise in something that was incredibly valuable to the white thoroughbred owners because this thing was an absolute national obsession, mm -hmm. horse racing. You can't imagine it now. But, you know, 40,000 people in a time when that was a much more significant figure in a small population would go to the racetrack mm -hmm. to see these match races between the most famous thoroughbreds. Um, and there were three newspapers just devoted to horse racing. So there was a lot of information that I could, you know, just eke out. Um, because these uh, enslaved men were so important to the prestige and the wealth, of the thoroughbred owners. They, they would write to each other about them. And it's really striking because they don't speak of any of their other enslaved people with this kind of respectful tone. Mm. Usually it's very um, derogatory or um, making fun uh, of enslaved people if they're mentioned at all. But in the case of the black horsemen, there, there is regard and respect because there's dependence. And I found that very uh, extraordinary. There was something, I mean, there's a lot that's horrendous for those of us that aren't that familiar with the history of slavery. But there was something that really struck me that you referred to in the book, you, that the white owners regarded their slaves as investments in the same mm -hmm. way as they regarded the horses as investments. And you refer to um, a newspaper article that was talking about the sales of horses and inflation and rates going up and down, and right next to it had listed the sales of slaves in the, in the same way. That's right. These were enslaved jockeys, uh, and there was a lot of discussion in the newspaper about the inflation. We see through Jarrett and the way that he's written what a lot of what life was like for a slave, and in particular some of the, the limitations um, tell us about some of them. I mean, the one that's most striking because of the way you do it in the chapter headings is that Jarrett's not allowed to have his own name. He's just referred to as whatever his owner name is, you know. Mm. He's so Warfield's so. Jarrett, he's Tenbrook's Jarrett, yeah. yeah he's, uh, but really, it was the fragility of the black family 
that is the most striking thing because even mm. these men who were integral to uh, this enterprise and had um, within the enslavement system a lot more agency than most enslaved people in that they could travel across state lines, in that they could hold property in their own name, which was something that was impossible for most. Um, but they could still be torn from their family at any moment and sent to another, mm -hmm. traded to another thoroughbred owner as a favour. And they had absolutely no say in that. So I think it was the fragility of the family that was the most poignant to and me. And no agency, as the point yeah. you made. Yeah. No agency at all in their yeah. own, no yeah. control of their own lives. You are known as much as anything else for your meticulous research. Um, I'm going to come to the research about the Oster Lab later on. Let's stay now with the research that you did into um, the US and the horse racing industry in the 1850s. As part of that research, you did a road trip to Kentucky with your late husband, the writer Tony Horwitz, and your son, Bezu. And you visited estates, you visited museums, you read newspapers. Could you tell us a bit about that trip and what you discovered? Uh, well, that was, a, that was a great trip because Tony, Tony Horwitz, my husband, was working on a book that um, had extraordinary uh, overlaps and characters that were associated with the horse were also associated with what he was researching, which was the travels of the famous American landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted in the years before he knew he was going to be a landscape architect, in fact, invent the profession and create Central Park. Uh, he was a, uh, a reporter in his early years, and he was sent by the New York Times to go and visit the South and write about why America was so divided. And so Tony decided to retrace Olmsted's journey with what he found in the 19th century and then look at the contemporary situation where the country is once again pulling apart. And so he was there to do that, and I was there to find out about the horse. And... Um, uh, we would go off and do our separate things, but he was, he was, he's a very, he's a real historian, and so he was really great at diving into the archives and finding fabulous um, bits and pieces that were useful for my research. But I, he came with me to um, horse farms where the new foals had just been born, and some things are different in the 19th century and some things are the same. And the birth of a foal is one of the things that's the same. Mm. So if you've seen it, you know what it's like. Mm. <laughs> I was yeah. wondering how much, you, I mean, those, the passages describing um, Lexington and preparing him for the race, and in particular, the, just that beautiful, I mean, I've seen you've described the book in some ways as a love story, one aspect of a love story between a man and the horse, that just beautiful portrayal of the relationship between Jarrett and the horse, Darley, and then Lexington as he became known. How much of that, how much did you draw on your own love of horses? Oh, completely. I mean, love of animals in general. And uh, I think the bond between people and animals is one of the things that makes life worth living, or at least it does for me. And of course, I have incredible concern about the abuse of horses in racing, mm. uh, particularly in the contemporary... You know, these horses mm. in the 19th century, uh, they didn't race them as two-year-olds, which is a, a brutal and terrible thing to do to a young horse before their bones are even fully formed. Um, they didn't pump them full of drugs to get them on the track, and they bred them to be incredibly sturdy as well as swift 
because the races were much longer in those days. They could be as long as four miles. You know, we think one mile is a long race, but they would race four miles, and sometimes they would do it three times in one day. So these were strong horses. Uh, and now thoroughbreds are so fragile, if they get five starts, it's considered a good run. And that's crazy. You know, it is crazy. We've made these horses so frail. That's ironic and I'm sure a coincidence that there's a link back to your first ever job when you started as a reporter <laughs> at the Sydney Morning Herald. And just remind me, your degrees were in uh, government and fine arts. arts. Fi yeah, government <laughs> and fine arts. And then you got your job, first job with the Sydney Morning Herald. And where did they send you? Sports department to be the assistant to the racing writers. <laughs> what did that involve? It meant going to every race uh, in Sydney, which is a considerable number. It certainly was uh, in uh, whenever it was, 1980. Um, and taking down the details of every horse in every race and doing it at speed and doing it with accuracy. Uh, and then at the, you know, at the end of the night, you would go back and you had to look at the front page of the first edition to make sure everything was correct. Because in those vastly distant pre-internet days, um, rural bookmakers paid out on the results as reported in the first edition of the Herald. So if I made a mistake, <laughs> I was going to be terminated and not just by the paper. <laughs> so, um, but I still have PTSD from that because... No, if you love animals and if you go to all those races, you're going to see a number of accidents and they were horrible, absolutely horrible. So every time I went out to the track, I went, you know, dreading a pile up and a fall and a horse being destroyed. I want to come back to the research because I have this very strong image of you. There's a library called, was it Keene Town Library in Kentucky? Keeneland, Keeneland. It's beautiful. In Kentucky. Yeah. And you... You read the actual newspapers. That, yes. like, you made the point before that the um, there were two of the main, two of the main three newspapers were specifically about horse racing. Yeah. And you actually read original horse racing newspapers, yes. didn't you? Yes. And this was the, this was the, so you never know when you embark on a historical novel what's going to be the easy thing to research and what's going to be the hard mm. thing. There was so much about this horse. He would. He was so famous and so beloved. Every, every hoofbeat that he took was documented. So everything in the novel that's about the horse and the races is accurate. And I know that because it was reported in these papers. And when he died, his obituary ran over about three broad street pages with everybody who'd ever had anything to do with him weighing in with their opinions. So there was a ton of material on the horse himself. Had anyone else ever written about him before? Luckily not. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, it was when I, when I started on the book, every I'm sure time... there are books here on Farlap. Oh, tons. Yeah. Tons. And, and in, the, in the United States, you know, Seabiscuit's famous. Yes. Secretariat is famous. And lucky me. <laughs> and I would say to people, uh, have you ever heard of a horse called Lexington? And they'd say, no. And I'd go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Geraldine, I'm interested too in what you do in this book and you make it clear because there's, um, apart from the fact there's an author, a really helpful author's note at the end of the book, there's also a section where you give sort of potted biographies of the real people who you mentioned in the book. In this part of the book, not so much in the part we're about to come to, but in this section of the book in the 1800s, 
there's a mix of characters that you've created, such as Jarrett, for example, mm -hmm. and then there are real live characters like Cassius Clay, for example. Yes. How do you do that? How do you blend the actual real-life people with the fictional characters? And then I might ask you to tell us a little bit about Cassius Clay because he was a really interesting he person. He is so interesting, mm -hmm. I think. But um, for me, why would you make it up if you can find out the story? Because I, and I've quoted it in the afterward, uh, what Mark Twain said, <laughs> fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. So, you know, if I had have made up a Cassius Clay or a Richard Tenbrook, it would be kind of implausible because they are so larger than life. So if you can find characters like that to mm. work with, why not use them? But it's where the, where the historical record falls silent, like with Jarrett, who we know existed, but we don't know anything about what it was like to be him. So that's where the novelist's imagination has to build the character based on whatever you can find. So tell us about Cassius Clay and what his link is to Lexington. So Clay was um, the scion of a very wealthy and influential family in Kentucky, politically um, extremely important family, and the biggest slaveholding family in Kentucky. And he goes off north to college and comes back absolutely convinced that slavery is an evil. And so he um, emancipates all the slaves that he inherited. And that didn't go over very well in Kentucky. And he then starts a newspaper called The True American, which is advocating uh, for emancipation. And this is so unpopular that he, there are three assassination attempts on his life. But he is such a bloke. <laughs> that he fights off his attackers. Once, one time a guy shoots him in the chest and he just comes back at the guy with the Bowie knife that he kept str strapped on his back at all times and eviscerates the dude. <laughs> anyway, he, he, his life is such a story and it goes well beyond his connection with the horse. He's connected to the horse because he's married to the daughter of the doctor who was the putative owner of the horse. So, mm. And that... I the, I, when I first heard the name Cassius Clay, that was Muhammad Dali's name, wasn't yes. it? And he was named for this historical figure. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the roots of research that this <laughs> well, book took you down. It's so crazy. I mean, there was more I could have done. I mean, the doctor who, who, um, who, who owned Lexington and uh, whose property Lexington was bred on, um, was the doctor who delivered Mary Todd Lincoln. I mean, it's just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Let's move now to the modern story, the 2019 story of Theo and Jess. Mm. Who is Theo and what do we know about him? So Theo is an art historian and he is very interested in depictions of uh, black people in Western art. And, he's and he written, is a black man. Yes, yeah. he is a Nigerian-American uh, whose parents were diplomats. And um, he's educated mostly in the UK and then he comes to the United States for college and graduate school. So he's black, but he's not a black American. So he's a little bit of an outsider in that regard. And I just wanted the picture to be as complicated as possible because... One of my uh, great friends is the black historian Henry Louis Gates, 
and he teaches a course at Harvard, and the first thing he says to his students every year is, there are 20 million ways to be black in America. And I think, you know, I wanted it to be a complicated, and also, um, so he becomes obsessed with a painting of the horse that he finds discarded in a junk pile. And that's based on a true story. That is based on a true story. That is how the artist Thomas J. Scott's work was rediscovered. So, yeah, again, fiction yes. <laughs> is obliged to stick to possibilities. But and anyway... Did you say that thanks to you there are people all over America checking out what's being thrown out <laughs> on curbsides? <laughs> well, I'm just hoping this picture of, uh, of Lexington and Jarrett turns up. Because that's missing, isn't it's it? It's missing, and I'm you know hoping somebody goes into their laundry and says, you know, that... It's a nice-looking horse. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, so Theo uh, finds, the, finds this picture and he, he, has a, he has a side hustle writing magazine articles on art for the Smithsonian Magazine. And so he wants to write an article about how do you find out the history of a piece of art that you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And he becomes then obsessed with the depictions of the black horsemen in art. Mm. And it's, it's quite um, remarkable because the artists who painted the horses often painted the grooms and the trainers and the jockeys with the horse. And the individuals in those paintings are depicted in a very unstereotypical way. Mm. They're not just there to aggrandise a white owner or, you know, to be an exotic element in the painting. As they often were as in other As they often art. were. Yeah. And instead, they are depicted as professionals who have really important jobs and know what they're doing. Mm. And so Theo becomes intrigued with this and how it contrasts with other studies that he's made. Mm. And that's what he decides to do his PhD in. Yes. In the chapters told in Theo's voice, we witness countless examples of everyday racism. His neighbours are rude to him when he first meets Jess, who will come to. She accuses him of stealing her bike. When he taps someone on the shoulder, a white woman, she turns around in an aggressive way. I think you say she white womans him. Why was it so important to you to deal with racism in modern America? Something that you described in one of your interviews as the jackhammer outside your window. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it really was because as I'm writing this book, George Floyd dies under the knee of a white policeman. Breonna Taylor is shot in her own bedroom. Uh, Ahmed Aubrey is hunted down by racists for going in for a jog in a white neighbourhood. And on and on and on, so many names, so many deaths. So there was no way to just say, oh, slavery, we fixed that problem. Uh, it had to be, it had to echo and reverberate in the contemporary novel as well. And also, you know, microaggressions are a real thing. And I think we've all become a lot more aware of how what we say can hurt. And, you know, we only have to look at what's been going on here with the debate around the voice to know that we've still got so much work to do. And with what's happened with Stan Grant this oh, week, Stan as we were Grant. discussing. Yeah, yeah. That's not a microaggression. No. That is full-on racial bile. Geraldine, you see parallels. <laughs> you see parallels between the divisions in America today 
and the divisions in the years leading up to the Civil War, in eight, which started in 1861. Well, you you'd have bit? to have blinkers on not <laughs> to see that. I mean, the mm. country is just fracturing. Mm. Yeah. Tell us about Jess. She is... Well, I'm not going to tell you. You tell us about Jess. <laughs> Who is she and what work does she do? So what work does she do? I had, I had so many characters that I had to arduously and meticulously research for this book and do so many interviews and just be so careful. And I thought, I'm just going to give myself a break here and give myself one character that I already know. And who is she? <laughs> She's me. <laughs> I heard you say that in an interview and I'd never thought of it before. No. Why is she? Well, tell us about her first well, and then why she She's kind of this nerdy girl from um, the inner west who loves science. And, you know, I wasn't... I wasn't into bones, but I used to go to the tip and bring home all these specimens to look at under my microscope. And my mother would see them and have 50 fits. And, you know, I found a dead rat once and I was so intrigued by it. And I brought it into the bedroom and, you know, it, my poor mother. Anyway, I had a chemistry set. I was always blowing things up. And, uh, and then, you know, I went to the States for a bit of an adventure and ended up getting a really great job offer and staying way longer than I meant. Too. So you are <laughs> Jess. So tell us more about Jess. She she studies zoology. And also a little a little blockheaded as she is, and, <laughs> and I say a lot of stupid things as she does. Yeah. <laughs> What's her job? So she has this great job, and I met the women who actually do this job, and they were so cool. Um, it is preparing the bones for the scientists to study at the at the Smithsonian, and. You go to the osteo osteoprep lab, which is in the museum support center. So the Smithsonian is this vast um, collection of different museums that are all on the Washington Mall, and people go and visit them, and many people here might have visited one or two of them. And it's called the Attic of America. But the attic has an attic, and that's the museum support center in Maryland. Um, and how far is that from Washington? So, uh, 12 miles, maybe. Um, and it's... No, 12 miles is how big it is. I don't know how far it is from Washington. Not too far. Not no, too just, far. Yeah. So um, it's 12 miles of everything that human beings have created and, and a record of every species that, that we know of on the planet. And all kinds of science goes on there. All kinds of art conservation, all kinds of... Um, uh, biological research, zoological research, and in one funky corner of it is the osteoprep lab, and it's very far away from everything else. And I said, why is that? And they said, well, what we do is a bit pungent. <laughs> so they get dead animals, and they have to get all the flesh off the bones. And I won't go into all the details, but the last step um, this is a very modern lab facility, but they haven't found anything better to clean bones than the work that can be done by bugs. So the center of the osteoprep lab is the bug room, and you take the carcass after it's desiccated sufficiently, and you put it down on the floor in the bug room. And the only thing I can liken it to was buffet night for my son's high school football team. <laughs> <laughs> These bugs just descend and they can take all the tissue away without 
destroying any information that the bones contain. If you used chemicals to do it, if you used a mechanical device to do it, you would sacrifice tissue, and the bugs don't. They take the flesh and leave the bones pristine. He couldn't make it up. I mean, that was an example of what you said. That, you, you, that was such a vivid picture that you painted of that. Geraldine, I want to ask you a few general questions now about your work on this book. These characters, as anyone who's read this book will know, are so lovingly drawn. We feel so deeply attached to these main ones in particular, Jarrett and Theo and Jess. And I wanted to ask you about something that you said. In 2019, I think it was, you tragically lost your husband, writer Tony Horwitz, at a time while you were writing Horse. You were halfway through it. And you said, it breaks your heart open, makes you more in tune with suffering. I think it does do something to how you portray your characters. And I wondered if you'd like to talk about the impact of that on your... I mean, your characters are always beautifully drawn, but these ones, they're, they're just... You just empathise enormously with them. So, you know, Tony was the most vibrant, healthy guy, and then suddenly he was gone between one breath and the next, so unexpectedly and so suddenly. So we were, the kids and I were just knocked sideways, and I couldn't write anything for about a year. And then I got some advice from a friend um, who had got the advice from the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had told her when she was going through a period of great loss, do your work. Mm. It might not be your best work, but it'll be good work, and it'll be what saves you. And so I took that advice finally, and I crawled back to my desk, because Tony had loved this book, and he had confidence in it when I didn't, and he made me keep going at it when I was afraid that it was going to get me cancelled and I might never be able to publish another book again. And he said, no, you, you just do the work and do it well and, you know, trust. And so I knew I had to finish the book, if only so I could dedicate it to him. But when I went back to the book, unbeknownst to me, the second half is a very different book. And I didn't even notice what grief had done until a friend read it and he said, you know, the second half of this book is suffused with your own loss. And I understand now that he was right and very perceptive because it is, it, it is a very diff it goes in a very different direction, I think, that, than it might have gone if Tony had been alive. Let's come back to that comment about your concern about being cancelled. So as you are painfully aware, we all are, there's been a lot of discourse over the last decade or so about who has the right to tell certain stories, the idea of literary appropriation. Two of the main characters from whose perspective you write are black men. One is Jarrett in the 1850s, one is Theo in 2019. What do you say to those who say that a white woman shouldn't tell the story of these people? So, you know, I think this discourse has been incredibly valuable because 10 years ago you would walk into a publishing house in the US and you wouldn't see anything except a sea of white faces. Publishing was one of the whitest 
industries that there was. And, and this discourse has broken that open. And there are so many more voices being heard, writers, uh, that we wouldn't have heard from before. So I think it's been incredibly valuable and I don't belittle it mm. in any way. No. But once I realized that this was the story of Lexington, I had the coward's choice, which would be to center the story on the white owners who are very interesting. You know, I could have easily done that. White owners, white painter, and pushed the enslaved characters into the background. But what a what an outrageously cowardly thing that would be to do, to erase the contribution of these men again, um, to not give them a voice. So once I realized that I was going to proceed with the novel, I knew that they had to be central to it. And once they're central to it in the story of the horse, then they have to be in the contemporary story as well for the reasons that we've already discussed, because it's too easy for everyone to say, oh... I couldn't believe Dutton the other day saying it will re-racialize this society. Hello, when was it not racialized? Mm. So, you know, we, cannot, we can't believe that we've solved these problems because it's so patently not true. I've got one more question. Before I ask it, I'm going to invite members of the audience to come to the front. If you've got questions that you'd like to ask Geraldine, there are two microphones down the front. For people who are listening through streaming, I think you, some of your questions will come up on screen. So anybody that has a question they'd like to ask Geraldine, if you'd like to come to the microphones while I ask my final question, although if there are no questions, I have more. <laughs> <laughs> Geraldine, I loved one point. There are a couple of points like this, but one point, Theo is showing Jess around the American Art Museum and she's sort of blown away by his knowledge. And she, or you say, or he says, or thinks, art to him was a way of responding to and shaping social change. Is that what you believe? Probably. <laughs> uh, I don't... I think... I think that you have to be committed to the work in itself before you're trying to, you know... Mm give a message. The story has to come first. Mm. But it, it's inevitable that your own convictions will shape the story too. Mm. Questions over here? Hi, thank you so much um, for an amazing uh, talk. Um, I'm just wondering, I teach um, young women uh, English and to write, and I'm wondering, um, Geraldine, what advice would you give um, not just young women, but young writers um, about their writing? Oh, yeah, I think um, do it every day. Um, read everything and particularly read poetry because even if you're not planning on writing poetry, the poets are the Olympic athletes of writing. <laughs> <laughs> and I find that um, my practice in the morning is to make a cup of coffee and I get the Norton anthology or another poetry anthology and let it fall open and read whatever poem it lands on. And it's my pump prime because you get so inspired by what poets can do with language. And so I would say, you know, um, that that uh, 
is, is just a, a great practice. But I think reading and seeing how it works, if you read something and it really transports you, ask yourself, why did it? And how can I do that in my own writing? And also, do everything. Like, the beauty of being a writer is there's no one career path to do it. You can come at this from anywhere. And uh, anything that you do uh, can, can fuel the writing. And so, do everything. And if it doesn't work out, do something else. <laughs> is that something done? No. I've got another question. We've got no, a good. Sorry. Hi. Over here. Hi, Geraldine, and thank you for your books. Um, you were saying that uh, writers should read. Outside of your research, who do you read? Oh, gosh. So I've been on a pretty extensive book tour um, for this book, and that often means going to festivals with other writers. And so this year I've just been reading everybody that I've been appearing with. <laughs> and that's been really fun because I don't usually restrict myself to um, freshly published fiction. But this year, just uh, as, as a matter of, uh, of interest and good manners, that's what I've been reading this year. So uh, I'm very well read in everything that's come out in, in the last 12 months. <laughs> uh, Geraldine, there's a question come in from Linda in Albany, Western Australia. What's next? Oh, this is very lovely. <laughs> I suffer every time I finish your latest book, knowing it will be likely to be several years before your next marvellous novel is published. <laughs> so the question was, what's next? Well, um, next is not a novel. Uh, oh, well. Next is a, a short, short memoir just trying to come to terms with what happened to us when Tony died. And so I um, took myself off to Flinders Island in February and uh, was alone in a shack uh, on a beach there and wrote my heart out, basically. So I just have to uh, finish that. But after that, I have another historical novel. Uh, and it's just like that infatuation. You know, I see the idea and I can see exactly how to do it and it's going to be so easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you about it yet because it's too far away, but I can tell you that as part of the research, I'm going to be a visiting fellow at New College in Oxford next year. Wow. And wow. I, I can't say New College with a straight face because it was new in the 14th century. <laughs> <laughs> Geraldine, something else that I was wondering, and maybe you've just touched on it, is which comes first, the research or the story? Do you think to yourself, that's an area I'd really like to research, so I'll write a novel about it? Or do you have in mind a story and that leads you down the research path? It's, it's the story. Mm. It's the story. And, uh, yeah, this one's a little unusual because usually it's something that happened in the past that if you made it up would be completely implausible and nobody would be bothered with it. Like Caleb's Crossing, for example, about a Native American who graduated from Harvard in 1636, you know, no, sorry, 1665, Harvard started in 1636. But if you made up that a, a Native American from his own language and culture um, learned Latin and Greek and graduated with the son of John Eliot and the other Puritans, it, it would be completely implausible, but it actually happened. And so that's usually what's the story for me, but this new book is inspired by a piece of furniture. So what can I say? <laughs> Anne. 
Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. I'm a huge fan of both of your works. Um, without giving too much away for those who haven't read it, there's a wonderful, intriguing connection with Australia and a museum collector. And I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about how that came about. Well, if you're thinking about um, art and you're thinking about horse racing and you happen to admire a certain museum in Tasmania, <laughs> and you have a character whose parents live in Tasmania, your mind kind of goes to that guy. <laughs> and then you think, oh, yeah, that's exactly the kind of crazy thing he would do. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so um, without giving much away, but um, Jess's parents have retired to Tasmania, haven't they? That's, yes. So Jess is from Australia originally. Well, Tasmania is Australia. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, no, no. I meant she's, she's living in America. She's from Sydney. I did not mean that. I meant she's living in America she, when we meet her yeah, and in the and book. She, she's, she's from, from Sydney. Yes. And, Sorry, and I, 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 kind of, I kind of sent her parents to Tasmania because I kind of wish my parents had have retired to Tasmania, <laughs> <laughs> particularly to Signet, which is a really beautiful place. <laughs> um, I've got another question about your actual writing process. I, lo I love what you said. I'm going to completely take it on board. Not that I'm... I don't write like you do, but for work generally, to start the day by reading some poetry, I just absolutely love that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process? I read somewhere that in your big kitchen in Martha's Vineyard, there's a big old kitchen table and there's a big fireplace, and that that's often where you sit to write. Can you yeah, particularly now flesh that, out that picture particularly a bit? now that my kids have left home mm. and I've got the whole house to myself, so I can write in the kitchen. I don't need to sequester myself in a study anymore. Mm. And I just found that that's where I really like to to do it. But uh, and do you sit down? Like, do you do you sit down at the same time every morning? Well, you know, I got into the. I became a writer because I had this baby and I mm. couldn't go off on long open-ended newspaper assignments anymore or I didn't want to. So I had to find something else to do and that's when I started writing novels. So I wrote them with the constraint of childcare and mm. at first it was like we could afford four hours of babysitting <laughs> so that was my writing day. And you don't have writer's block if you've only got four hours. <laughs> but then, oh, happy day, they go to school. And you've got a full six hours. And in, in the United States, the school bus comes and takes them away. And then the school bus brings them back. And that period between the bus arrival and departure was my, uh, my riding day. And I've tended to stick with that because it seems to work pretty well. I can um, see so many people nodding in the audience. Hands up if the work day at some point in your life went from nine till three. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot yeah. of us in the room understand that. Yeah, and you think, oh, you know, I'm it's going to be so great when um, I don't have the constraint of looking after the little kids and I can have a wine field all night. Huh? <laughs> Didn't work for me. I found I wasn't writing anything without the constraint, and then wow. I had to reimpose it. So I think it, it was. It, it it just seems like six hours is. Just right, because then you get up and you've still got some ideas and you've still got some juice. And you're very disciplined in those six hours, I can imagine. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> Geraldine, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was terrific. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel. <laughs>